Welcome to the TCW Investment Perspectives Podcast. I'm Anisha Goodley, head of the Emerging Markets Portfolio Specialist Team at TCW. I'm here today with Brett Rowley, our Sovereign Analyst for Africa and the Middle East. Brett has been covering EM Sovereign Credit for over 25 years and has spent the last 10 plus years as a dedicated analyst for the region. He just got back from a week in Egypt at the African Development Bank meetings, so our talk today is timely. Today, we're going to focus on the opportunities and challenges in Africa from a fixed income perspective. We'll start with some high-level observations about the region, and then we'll dive into some individual countries as well. Brett, thanks so much for joining us today to share your thoughts. Thanks, Anisha. It's great to be here with you again. There's a lot to discuss, so let's jump right in. First, I think actually we should kick off with some context about the EM fixed income opportunity set in Africa, because it's certainly grown. It's quite differentiated. So why don't you give us a little perspective on that? Sure. And and when I started covering Africa in about 2010, there were only five countries in the index. South Africa, uh, Gabon, Ghana, Egypt, and Tunisia. And they represented less than 5% uh, of the index. Uh, and, and most of that was South Africa. Uh, now we have 16 countries that are in the index and a handful of others that are off index that only issue euro-denominated debt. You know, but it's it's not just the the number of countries that has expanded, but it's also it goes across the rating spectrum. Uh, you have you know certainly outliers that, that are currently in default, Ghana and Zambia, uh, but then you know you also have all the way up to single A rated Botswana. It's not in the index; it hasn't needed to issue, but they are talking about issuing and coming to market within the next couple of years. And then there's a bunch of you know single Bs and, and double Bs in that space. The other differentiating factor is a lot of people think, when, when they think of Africa, they think of the, all these commodity exporters. And it's true, there are a lot of uh, commodity exporters, whether it's oil, metals, and mining, um, but there are also uh, a lot of African countries that export food and, and agriculture. Uh, but then there's a lot of countries that uh, are, are net commodity importers as well. So you have to think of Africa as, you know, more than 50 countries with a broad range of economic and, and political drivers that gives us a lot of opportunities to invest across uh, the credit spectrum. That's actually such an important point, Brett, because actually if I think about the EM equity index, it has two countries. Right? right, South Africa and Egypt, and that's total what two and a half to three percent or so of the of of that index. So, what I'm also hearing what you're saying is that not only has this opportunity set on the fixed income side increased, but you actually get an opportunity to get involved earlier in the development process as that's, well. That's that's very true, uh, and particularly because as some of these countries do take their first foray into the euro bond market, it's because they are graduating from, uh, you know, the grants after, after several years of getting concessional financing from the multilateral development banks. They want to develop more infrastructure. So they, you know, roads, airports, ports. And, and so you really do have an opportunity to get involved at a very early stage and across various stages of the development cycle. Well, that's a great transition right to the development meetings that you attended last week. So can you actually just talk to us a little bit about your overall observations? I know you've been visiting for years. So just tell us what, what was the tone like? 
What did you notice? Yeah, I, I guess I'll start with, I mean, the last time I was here with you was talking about the IMF meetings in D.C. Right. in April. And I think there's it's important to make a, the distinction between the two. Yes, they're both multilaterals, but the, the African development banks are much more intimate. When, when I'm in the, the, the IMF meetings in D.C., I mean, there are thousands of, of buy-side investors there. You know, contrast that with last week in Egypt, there were 15. We say that again. How many? 15. One five. Wow. Um, and, you know, look at the, the banks doing meetings in D.C. It's like almost every bank will try and set up meetings in D.C. There are only three banks that tried to help set up meetings there. And it's because the, the officials, the, the schedules are a lot more fluid. The policymakers tend to postpone, delay, cancel meetings. And, and there's a lot of people that just don't have the patience to deal with that kind of fluid schedule. And so over the course of the week, you, know, you, know, you may have a full schedule at the beginning of the day and half the policymakers cancel the meetings or they get postponed to the next. So you have to have a lot of flexibility and be willing to do chats um, you know, on the sidelines of the meetings and lobbies of hotels and cocktail receptions. But when you do, when you do catch them, it's a much more intimate intimate environment where you can have some real meaningful discussions where they're not worried about, you know, whether or not this is going to be broadcast to thousands of investors. Well, Brett, it sounds like it was a pretty intimate setting where you could really get in the weeds a bit. Was there a lot of talk about financing and different opportunities for financing some of these countries? Yeah, there were several uh, different different topics. One of them, I would say that, again, going back to the IMF meetings, where it seemed like a lot of the focus was on uh, you know, countries that are on the verge of default and how uh, private creditors need to, you know, pay their fair share in, 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 returns, in terms of their debt relief. With the African Development Bank meetings, almost everyone there was focused on how do we help these countries get through the liquidity crisis. So not only did you have African Development Bank uh, officials talking about uh, increasing their support for these these countries, you had Afrexim, which is the African Export-Import Bank, talking about the ways that they could uh, put together financing. You had, um, and then obviously these other investors that I, were, I was with, I mean, these are people that have also been looking at the region for, you know, many of them for, you know, 10 years or more that I've been associating with over the years. And so it was a much more collaborative uh, environment where we were talking about solutions to some of the financing issues that, um, that people have been worried about over the past couple of years, rather than just focusing on what the problems are. Actually, let me expand on that, because when we think about collaboration, one of the first things that also came to mind was really the climate crisis. Yes. And so we know Africa is one of the most vulnerable regions in the world to climate change. And a lot of capital is needed. And you and I have talked about how there are so many varying stats on how much capital is needed annually or through 2050, et cetera. Can you help us put that in perspective, just the capital needs, you know, and maybe just delve into some of the individual situations that are happening, whether it's the droughts or the floods, because it's impacting economic growth. Yeah. No, and, and I think an important um, stat to, that is commonly thrown out there is Africa only generates 2 to 3% of the carbon emissions. Right throughout the world, right? But yet they are, I mean, I think it's eight of the 10 most vulnerable countries in the world are in Africa. And, and it's also we have to think that these are countries that are still at fairly early stages of their de development cycle. So their energy demands are going to continue to grow as they, as they develop. 
you know, some of the stats the IMF recently put out in their April, their annual report on, uh, on the economic outlook for, for Africa. For, for climate mitigation, it was $50 billion was needed annually through 20, 2050 for climate mitigation. And, and to help for a clean transition, you would need almost like $190 billion annually through 2030. I mean, those are massive numbers. Uh, and obviously, you know, the private sector can't come up with it all. The, you know, the public sector can't come up with it all. So we do need a lot of, you know, collaborative solutions uh, as, as we try and figure out how to help some of these more vulnerable countries. And, you know, because they have such high energy demands, it actually would help, you know, if it helps if developed countries um, can help provide some of that financing as well, because it's clearly going to be some social needs going forward. And are you seeing any of that, whether it's in labeled bonds or certain sectors? You know, it's, you know, we're in early innings yeah. of this. And it seems like there's also a lot of infrastructure need that needs to be developed around these kind of new structures. Absolutely. Tell us more about that. Yeah. So we've seen a, a couple of uh, countries come out with sustainable and labeled bonds. Benin, for example, uh, came out with a sustainable bond. Egypt has a green bond. Um, they're almost every country, when they're coming through doing their investor roadshows now, they're talking about putting out a labeled bond, whether it's a blue bond, a green bond, or another bond uh, related to sustainable development goals. So everybody is thinking about it. I think we're probably another one or two years away before it, we start seeing this, this issuance in force. And part of that is because we as investors are not yet willing to give these African issuers the proper greenium to, to go ahead and issue. So far, the right. spread between these labeled bonds and the conventional bonds is still really small. And they have to put a lot of effort into putting the framework in place, putting people in to monitor it. And so it's really just so far, they haven't found that it's worth the effort to, to go ahead and, and pull the trigger on that. But every single one of them is thinking about it because it clearly is the way forward. And, and how they're going to tap this new source of capital. And are you seeing any sort of demographic shift in any of these countries? I get the sense that there's a lot of youth populations that are really starting to get energized. Yes, um, definitely. I mean, the, the whole continent is, is a lot younger. They're becoming more educated, but yet in many cases, unemployment remains very high. And so in order to address a lot of these issues, we really need to figure out some solutions some to some of these underlying problems. And then when you, you know, you talked about collaboration, I, I'm also really curious about, you know, when you're engaging with these sovereigns one-on-one. -on -one. So maybe can you share with us a little bit some, some of the examples that you found and maybe some of the collaborative nature of these efforts? Sure. Um, I think at least in terms of the, the climate, I mean, Gabon is the poster child for the region. Uh, they have a track record of about 30 years of environmental conservation. Uh, they're putting together uh, some climate swaps and, and receive some funding for that. So they're, they're actually in the lead in terms of countries in the region that are, are moving forward, figuring out how to basically be paid for not destroying their economy. And, and so they're, they're really doing a great job in, in, uh, in Gabon. Uh, there are other places that um, are certainly looking at that and trying to figure out what the best way is forward. But for the most part, like you said, we're still in very early stages here. And, and some of the engagement that we've had over the years, it's, and not just at the African Development Bank meetings, is to remind these policymakers that there are big pools of capital that are ready and willing to invest in, in labeled bonds. And, and we talk to them about how important it is to us 
to be able to help them along in this transition. And so we've had uh, conversations with the uh, Minister for Environment uh, in, in Gabon, for example. At the fall spring meeting or the fall meetings in, in DC, we had a meeting with with uh, Daniel Minelli, who at the time was in charge of of distributing the capital that was promised and, and pledged to South Africa at COP26. And so we try and meet as much as we can one-on-one with not just the finance ministers who need the money, but also the people who might actually deploy the money. Um, let me pivot quickly just to one other one other point. Then I want to delve into some individual countries, but I'm going to pivot to U.S.-China. Okay. And I know that's not your region, yeah. but it certainly has an impact on your region. So U.S.-China relations probably, you know, have gotten worse and worse um, over the years. And something that, you know, we keep, we're starting to see more headlines about is just rare earth metals. Right. Right. And so can you walk us through the opportunity in Africa? You know, can they, can they chip into some of the, the dominance that China has? And again, that, could that be an investment opportunity? Uh, they're certainly hoping that it will be. There are a couple of examples where, for example, Namibia and South Africa have a lot of potential for green hydrogen. And, and they're starting to put uh, a, you know some capital t- into uh, into work for that, but it will take a good you know five to seven years before they'll see the fruits from that, and so they they do need to start investing now to try and reap the benefits of that down the road. Not related to uh, China and rare earth, but I mean one of the benefits uh, it's probably not the right word to use, but of the the war in Ukraine is that some of these African countries that had just discovered oil and gas within the past three to five years, you know, when before the war and before the invasion, you know, people were wondering if any of this stuff was going to be commercially viable, you know, for they were sinking money into something that actually they were just not going to be able to pull it out of the ground. Obviously, with what has happened in, in Russia, uh, in Ukraine, there's been a lot of demand for gas, and so some of these projects that people thought might be mothballed, all of a sudden they're getting a lot of European interest for the gas in Mozambique, for example, and in a lot of these other places that you know might have otherwise gone undeveloped. Right. Well, actually, let's transition and talk about some countries. So I want to actually kick off with the elephant in the room, <laughs> which is South Africa. Uh, for those of you who cover Africa more actively, you know, there was a lot of excitement when Cyril Ramaphosa went, became president. Yes. Right? Ramaphoria. Then, yes, <laughs> exactly. That's right. I forgot that term. And then this this year, you know, the brand is effectively one of the worst performing currencies out there in emerging markets. So walk us through what's happening. Um, certainly it's made headlines more recently, you know, with with selling arms to Russia. Walk us through what's actually happening and what you're looking for, looking to see for a turnaround and if that's likely. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's tough because South Africa, at least, at least for a couple of years, and, you know, they had some really good tailwinds behind them. You know, it's, it was the commodities boom uh, over the last couple of years. So South Africa exports a lot of commodities, gold, platinum, for example. And, and so as those commodity prices rose, you know, they were able to take advantage of that, uh, and and it helped reduce their fiscal deficit. It helped uh, them shift from a current account deficit to a current account surplus, and so it they enjoyed a lot of tailwinds to you know, and and growth went from you know stagnant growth to a little over two percent. But what that did is it masked a lot of the underlying structural issues that still were pervasive in the country. One of them is a massive electricity shortage. 
And, and that's become a huge constraint on the economy where people go without power six, sometimes eight hours a day. You couple that with you know, some of the other underlying you know, issues, geopolitical concerns that we talked mm-hmm. about, whether or not they're truly being non-aligned with Russia. Right. And what we started to see is some of those tailwinds that were in place for the last couple of years have, com- have started to reverse. And so yeah, as those become headwinds, Basically, the things that were supporting South African credit over the past couple of years are, are we're at an inflection point now where they're actually going to become headwinds. And we're seeing that if they don't have the external support from the, you know, from the commodities boosts and, and then if we have all these underlying structural problems that you know, are pervasive in South Africa, it just shows that it's, it's going to continue to drift downward. And, and the problem is there's really no quick fix for any of the problems that South Africa faces right now. Thanks, Brett. That supports our underweight (laughs) (laughs) underweight there. So, Brett, if there are no quick fixes in South Africa, how about Nigeria on the back of the presidential elections? Yeah, so Nigeria is a potential bright spot in the region. They they could really be at an inflection point right now. You have President Tinubu that was inaugurated just this weekend. He was elected on on a change mandate. And, and literally, in his inauguration speech, he came right out and addressed the reforms that needed to be done urgently. Uh, subsidy removal, he says, they're gone. We need to align the FX uh, regimes. And, and those are two key reforms that investors have been waiting for and waiting for to try and deploy capital. So implementation will be key. You know, past presidents have tried to reduce subsidies, particularly on fuel. And they've always had to walk it back a bit. So implementation will be a risk. But it's exciting that he actually came right out of the gate and said, these are things that we need to do and we need to start doing them now. Uh, The other thing, the other, I'd say, elephant in the room for Africa, and you touched on this earlier in the conversation, but Africa basically got hit by a number of defaults, right? Yeah. And so you had Ghana, you had Zambia, um, you have a number of others that are effectively trading at distress levels. So is this a trend? Is there a contagion? Are there countries that are looking that may turn around in a more positive way? Yeah. Walk us through that. Yeah, the defaults, yeah, there, I think there's another misconception that there's a bunch of serial defaulters in, in Africa. And you know, we have had a couple. You mentioned Zambia and Ghana. Zambia was happened early on in the pandemic. You know, Ghana was more recent. And and we've talked about the common framework and, and the issues that and the challenges uh, of the common framework in the past. What I think is is interesting is we're now starting to get to the other side of that, where we've seen progress in Ghana, uh, for example, where they've received financial assurances. Uh, from the from the official creditors, the IMF package was just approved, and now they're moving into the you know, negotiating stages with with private creditors, and they you know they hope to finish that within the next six months or so. The the other names that are trading at distressed uh, prices, we've started to see a recovery in those names. The real pressure has been obviously global interest rates have risen, and the question is whether or not these names can actually refinance themselves as uh, some of the debt come to do. Kenya has been probably the most you know punished. They've got a big eurobond payment due in 2024. And now that we're about 12 months away, the market is really focused on whether or not they're going to be able to make that payment. Thanks, Brett. This has been great. Thanks for thanks for all this in, info. I think maybe I'll just summarize some of the things that really struck me 
during this conversation. And one is really where you kicked off is that this is a region that's grown in terms of the percentage on the debt side, uh, in terms of the index, and just in terms of the number of countries that you can actually tap into. I think your other point, it, it, you know, when you said only 15 buy-side investors went to these African development meetings, you know, you really have to get in the weeds on these countries. And the drivers, you know, whether it's political forces, whether it's the commodity exporters or importers, et cetera, you really have to understand what's driving economic growth in these countries. I think the other thing, of course, is just the significant capital needs that Africa requires, right? And that's going to create investment opportunities across a number of sectors, it seems like. And so I think, you know, we've gotten involved opportunistically in some of these. And then, you know, probably again in early innings, as you mentioned. Right. Well, Brett, thank you again for joining us. And thanks, everyone, for listening in today. Thank you for joining us today on TCW Investment Insights. For more insights from TCW, please visit tcw.com insights. This material is for general information purposes only and does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security. TCW, its officers, directors, employees, or clients may have positions in securities or investments mentioned in this publication, which positions may change at any time without notice. While the information and statistical data contained herein are based on sources believed to be reliable, we do not represent that it is accurate and should not be relied on as such, or be the basis for an investment decision. The information contained herein may include preliminary information and or, quote, forward-looking statements, end quote. Due to numerous factors, actual events may differ substantially from those presented. TCW assumes no duty to update any forward-looking statements or opinions in this document. Any opinions expressed herein are current only as of the time made, and are subject to change without notice. Past performance is no guarantee of future results.